regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form and in-depth conversation with other practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Sinji Kim, the founder and CEO of SelectStar, an intelligent data discovery platform that helps you to understand your data. Previously, she was the CEO of Concourse System, a New York City-based data infrastructure startup acquired by Akamai Technologies back in 2016. She led the development of Akamai's Internet of Things data platform for real-time messaging, log processing, and edge computing. Uh, prior to Concourse System, Shinji was the first product manager hired at Yomo, where she led the Art Format Lab, A-B testing, and U optimization. Before Yumo, she was analyzing data and building enterprise applications at the Law Consulting, Facebook, Sun Microsystem, and Basley Capital. Sinji studied software engineering at the University of Waterloo and general management at Stanford GSB. She also advised early stage startup on product strategy, customer development, and company building. Uh, so yeah, Sinji, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. By way of introduction, I noticed that you completed your bachelor degree in software engineering from the University of Waterloo in the late 2000s. So how was your overall academic experience at Waterloo and what were some of your favorite classes that you took? University of Waterloo is an amazing place, <laughs> I would say. I would say first and foremost, just being surrounded by other really smart people was great. I grew up in Calgary in Alberta where I guess it's not the biggest city, but getting to a place where everyone else is as like super smart and just is excited about computer science was just nice to be around with other nerds, I guess. So that's been fun. Uh, engineering was the program that I did. It's a pretty intense program. So I ended up spending a lot of like, you know, doing a lot of all-nighters at computer labs and whatnot. But I would say the best experience and best part about uh, Waterloo is the co-op program. So getting a chance to do six internships or similar experience are still in schools really opens you up to try many different types of work. So you can really find out what you like when what you don't before graduate. And I think that's a really interesting experience and definitely really valuable for anyone. So I really enjoy that. Regarding classes, I would say, I don't remember exactly what it's called. I think it's something like algorithms and data structures. Before going to college, I was building websites and doing some programming, took a bunch of programming classes in high school. But getting to a point where you start learning about like linked lists or Q or stack or even just like B tree or B plus trees, like it's like just like the part where I felt like, wow, like, there are like much better ways to solve these problems, you know, greedy versus dynamic uh, ways to figure out the algorithms. I, I uh, really enjoyed that, that part of classes is what I remember, but it's been a while since I got, so I can't name all the courses or even probably the algorithms, but yeah. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing your experience at Waterloo and the, the benefit of the co-op program and uh, the knowledge you acquire from those classes. And talking about the co-op program, uh, as you already mentioned, you completed multiple internships throughout your undergrad from doing statistical analysis at some microsystem to software engineering at Basley Capital to like even growth marketing at Facebook. What were some of the valuable lessons that you have learned from this co-op slash internship experience? Yeah, I mean, each of the experiences are very different. But I also like, hence learned many different things from those experiences. I would say those three internship experiences have all contributed to how I got more involved in data. So starting with some microsystems, I initially was building sales forecasting, almost like the platform where we were displaying the front end part of what our forecast looked like compared to the plans and actuals. And that was like all front end languages. It it was really just the data visualization uh, designed for sales and marketing and operations people to use. But then uh, the following internship at Sun, I was invited back to work on the actual sales forecasting model in R. Got me more into doing statistical programming, data modeling, and utilizing data. Uh, When I was at Blaze, it was more of an application development, but the project that I was working on was about deprecating old or unused database instances and managing them. Felt like was really interesting because like you're still like utilizing kind of almost like the meta of how the database is throughout the whole bank and it's an application that manages that. And I think both of those experiences were something that kind of contributed to also work at Facebook, which was back in 2009. A lot of the work that I did was, you know, it's it's called growth marketing and, and, and I did work on managing ad campaigns, but the real day-to-day work that I've done a lot is actually writing ETL jobs to pipe out the campaign data from, you know, Google AdWords and kind of like putting that into our analysis and calculation uh, to calculate the ROIs and keywords and all this type of stuff. So overall, I think it's all <laughs> very much the, like to data. And I got to learn a lot about like how you can like utilize the bare data that you have, but also kind of like how to utilize like metadata. I think maybe those are some of the lessons. Each of them, I think there are also a lot of personal lessons that I've learned because they are all three very different environments that I used to work in. So, cause like Sun Microsystems was a research lab. It was amazing to be part of a company that was putting a lot of money in uh, research and I was sitting in rooms with people that have wrote my textbooks and that's a really awesome learning environment and experience. Whereas Barclays is more of a very uh, business oriented environment where a lot of it is like also like budgeting and forecasting of the bank. And, you know, and last but not least at Facebook, which at the time it was a thousand person company. And at that time, smallest company that I was working with, mm-hmm. the culture of the company and how everyone was so invested in focused on like one common goal overall was like a really eye-opening thing. So it's really hard for me to say like, what is the lesson? But like, these are the exposures that I got during while I, I was still in college and Hence, overall, I want to, if any, to like give any advice to anyone that's like going through or they are in college right now is to basically, if you were to do internships, try many things until you find the ones that you really like. And then you can really also 
digging deeper uh, towards those. I have other friends that have done their in primarily in the same company or same where they ended up building a lot, like a deeper expertise. I guess. So if you find that early, great, but it's okay, even if you don't find it, because I, I still had a really valuable experience where like in later in my career now, like a lot of it is still contributing back to what I do day to day. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for the detailed answer and kind of walking over all these different phases and the type of environment to the type of activities that you got involved with. Uh, and I think, yeah, like giving that exposure to a variety of experience really, really allows you to, to find that right things that you want to pursue uh, professionally speaking. Yeah, after finishing your undergrad, you decided to join Deloitte full-time as a management consultant in the New York office. Why Deloitte, you have developed different business day presentation on corporate strategy, operating models, market assessment, and financial assessment for a variety of Fortune 500 companies. So reflecting on those period of your career, what are some of the big lessons that you learned from being a management consultant? So just to connect the dots, because I did work as a developer, data scientist, and also like working in more like a data engineer at the growth marketing team. Like by the time I was graduating, I didn't necessarily want to be a normal software engineer, but it wasn't super clear what role I should like go into. And my former manager at Facebook and also other people that I was looking to at Facebook at the time all came from management consulting. And at the time, I was encouraged that maybe that's something that I also try it out to a bit more about that side. I think the other big part for me is I got into computer science because I liked learning and I was always interested in learning about how things were built. But throughout my internships, a lot of my interest has shifted towards, so what are we building? Like, how is it defined? And once I started working with data more, a lot of those questions actually converted into, so like, why are we building this? How did we make this decision to invest in these campaigns or deciding to build this product or do it this way? Like, why are we making all this happen? And a lot of that comes from, you know, the business strategy or how you set these business goals to get there. So I felt like maybe it would be worthwhile to go to New York and learn more about the business side. So uh, that's how I ended up there. A lot of people actually think it's just like a very abrupt change. And I've done many different things uh, when you look at it, just the dots. But there is always that line that kind of always led me to kind of like got to where I was. Yeah. So having said that, with the law, I learned a lot around everything that is outside of, of what I learned from Silicon Valley, which is important and I think is, is very valuable, including like time management, project management, communication. A lot of the work that I've done uh, as a management was around gathering a ton of data and researches and distill it eventually down to a 20-page executive presentation. It could be a corporate strategy for dealing with like financial regulations again, or going after a new market, or even to just put together like a quarterly operating plan review for the COO, CIO, CEOs. I think it's just like a lot of like different skills that I learned. A lot of these projects are also very short and you do have to deliver uh, value to executives. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting and very fun. Yeah, I think I did like 10 different projects within uh, that very short time period when I was at Deloitte. I think if any career lessons uh, that I learned from there is 
And I think this might be specific to Deloitte, but I'm pretty sure most of like a really good, well-run company has this trait. I mean, Deloitte's a huge company. It is the largest like consulting company uh, in the US. And I would say many people when they are, are joining a large corporation, most of the time, and it is true that you do have to find your like crew of people, like allies and sponsors that kind of like meets also the passion that you have, um, things that you are interested in. When I first started, I wasn't necessarily, I, I didn't have any specific that I want to specialize in. And when I just like look back at that time, I was very active in meeting new people and learning about different service lines the company had, industries that the company was operating in, uh, what type of projects were going on. And that was at the time just trying to understand where I should go next or what should I eventually specialize in. But overall process, like nobody really like looked at me like I'm like weird because I didn't just like pick a street right, right away. A lot of senior partners at the firm took the time and energy to like coach me and provide me with guidance, which I look back, I'm very grateful for because I was just an analyst, right? And there are many different analysts, but I think, yeah, if I were to say any career lessons, it's just like, if you take the initiative to reach out and seek eyes for what you're looking for, there will be, you, you will, find, not everyone uh, will do this, but like you will find the right people who can give you guidance and advice. And I, I feel really grateful about that. Yeah, thanks for providing that input and the importance of finding mentors early in the career and all the valuable um, different skills that they pick up during those two years. So after Justine at law, you decided to quit the job and create a social puzzle game called Shuffle Picks. What urged you to make this career move? And then what were some of the key learnings that you absorbed from that first entrepreneur thing at the age of 26? Sure. So I met some really smart, hardworking and amazing people at Deloitte that I wanted to keep working with. But project-wise, I really was being building products and services that people use. And as a management consultant, you, you know, build a great plan and great, uh, make a great recommendation. And then you leave project somewhat, another firm or team at Deloitte will like implement it. And usually those are very long <laughs> implementation projects too. I just miss building products. So I decided that it's probably not the best fit for me to stick consulting. Then I just decided to that I should like prepare for that, which I wasn't sure what I was going to do at the time. I first wanted to pay off my student loan, I was like saving some money and also for some of my like quote unquote like runway to take some time off. And overall, I would say like, sure, it's a risky move. At the same time, at the time, I felt like I was still young. And also, if I need to, I can always go back to working at a tech company. I'll just go back to Silicon Valley and <laughs> maybe go back to Facebook if it doesn't work out, right? So I think I had that kind of like mindset. And that's why I was able to kind of decide to like start something. And ShuffleTix is just more of one ideas I had that I was able to, like a lot of my friends really liked and yeah, something that I was able to really want to build some scratch to like the actual launch. So that's just uh, more of a yeah, challenge to myself that I decided to take and see how it goes. Yeah. Was there anything valuable that you learned from that experience of building 
something from scratch at like this. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just a kind of like almost like everything. It's just like the whole experience of mm-hmm. building the product. Like you, you get to appreciate a lot of the the parts that other people have done that now you have to do. Uh, so that's like one part of it. I learned about like the gaming industry, how that works. I mean, in a way, I ended up like going to Yieldmo. Like the whole story is that I had a small success from ShufflePix. So ShufflePix is a puzzle game that turns your pictures into puzzles that you can uh, send to your friends to solve. And so it's a synchronous turn-based game. And I had like 50,000 users, not like a massive community, but you know, it's like a, a good enough success to maybe the next game. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe try different things and and maybe one of them will like blow up, right? Gaming is such a hit-driven market and that wasn't necessarily a business that I wanted to build. Mm-hmm. I also started Shuffle Piece because I just wanted to build. So just like thinking through a lot of this, I uh, decided that gaming probably may not be my thing right now. And I also really missed working in them. And that's why I decided that it might be better for me to fast moving and growing. So yeah, that's kind of like how I decided to uh, find the company that I wanted to, I guess, work with for a while. And while I was talking to my friend, uh, my friend introduced me to the founders of Yieldmo and Mm -hmm. uh, I decided to join them as the manager. So let's kind of transition into your time working as a PM on the mobile action network Yieldmo, right? And Basically, you let run the product engineering team there, and I suppose like what were some of the core responsibility that you assumed during your time at Yomo? Yeah, so we grew really fast at Yieldmo. I think it was less than twenty people when I joined, and kind of got up to about eighty people like after a year or so. So there are like so many different things that I uh, got involved with. And it's, it's really also awesome that I was able to get involved in a lot of the area. They were very open to having me to like, you know, do multiple things too. So I was a, in three main responsibilities. One is like general, like product management at the time, which was mainly being a liaison between the engineering and the business side, defining priorities and projects and what we were going to deliver, so on and so forth. There was also like a lot of like new product features or working with engineers to kind of like deliver it. I did a lot of QA always. I think it's something that PMs always have to do. So that's one part. From there, one of the things that came out that I ended up owning a lot is what we call uh, ad format lab. Yieldmo's proposition in the market at the time as a mobile ad network or mobile ad exchange is that it was a different types of ad format that was performing much better than industry standards. So mobile ads traditionally has been just like a small banner ad or like a full page, which either abrupts the user experience, everybody wants to just like exit out, or a small banner on top, like nobody actually sees it. So Yieldmo came up with a couple like new ad formats that look like something that is in the app store, or we would like inject like our HTML5 code like to just uh, make it look nicer that ended up performing a lot better for our advertisers. That was kind of the main. So uh, we ended up hiring a head of design and then kind of build out our like a series of like new ad formats. And I was like basically running that team to 
get through A-B testing, multivariate testing, start optimizing based on, you know, the format, like where those formats should appear, like which publishers, like what type of advertisers and are the right fit for each of the formats. So there was like the whole, like that process and the framework that I built that I ended up owning a lot. So yeah, that, that feels like I, my baby <laughs> at Yieldmo. And last but not least, there's always this like be- being involved in an early stage startup. There's like a lot of the operation part of it that I also got involved. First and foremost, like onboarding. A lot of people when they first joined, because I'm like the product manager, people just like come to me and ask me a bunch of product questions. And some of them, they have no or background in ad tech. And ad tech itself has a lot of acronyms, its own like, you know, platform that you know people don't understand so I ended up leading a lot of of new and kind of like putting together a lot of documentation about like you know CTR what's CTR what's CBR like you know like RTV and like all the acronyms so that's one part there are a bunch of other things like helping out on like building the board deck or talking to customers because we were also like always like recruiting for new customers with like this new ad format we are releasing for instance so help uh, working with salespeople on that side and last one uh, hiring and building teams so I helped hiring our head of design I think we brought on like two or three pms and like four or five engineers and data scientists that I like uh, yeah, like primarily like went to source and hire and close. And that, that's been a really also fun experience. Starting from like a small project that I initiated and then starting to like give that out to like a lot of different people. So it's a very mixed feeling when you're handing your projects to like, when I was leaving, I was handing the responsibilities to like four different people. And yeah, it's it's, it's been an amazing experience of being part of a company where uh, when it's growing so quickly. Because at Yieldmo, we, I think during the time I was there, we raised Series A and B. And shortly after I left, we raised Series C. Yeah, thanks for sharing the core projects working on, as well as the importance of like working on the some of the operational activities as the company scale, I think those are fundamental challenges that anyone who can start up my, my experience. No, I want to dig deeper into one specific thing that kind of impact your trajectory later on. You know, while working at Yomo during that growth phase, you start notice the problem upstream processing and later that result into the building of Conoco system. So can you reveal any specific challenges at Yomo that sparked such an interest uh, as well as the backstory behind the creation of Conoco? The main reason why we started Concord is because we, with the fast growth that Yieldmill had, we ran into a lot of challenges around scaling our data infrastructure. So Yieldmill by default as an ad network, uh, we get uh, events data from all the publishers we were working with, including like CNN, Forbes, Reuters, Fox News. When when I say mobile traffic, I'm talking like all the activity data, like whether it's an impression, somebody just scrolled a page or clicked this ad or they don't see the ad anymore. All these activities flowing into the system was hitting about 10 billion every day. And our main streaming pipeline of that was put together with Kafka, Storm, and HDFS was starting to break, especially on the Storm side. Uh, this is back in 2012, 2013. So this is pre-Flink, Spark, 
was coming up, but it didn't have Spark streaming. <laughs> Storm was the, I would say, the best at the time. And Storm was also getting uh, updated a lot. So it was a very interesting time. I would say almost like a beginning of like distributed stream processing. Anyway, but we, we had a lot of issues around it. The mayor, who was also the lead engineer of the company, who was like basically tasked to fix this issue. And he gets like called in the middle of the night to fix it. Uh, he was very frustrated and he was started working on his own stream processor on the side, plus plus. And the, him and I were close friends and he just wanted to help out on productizing it, maybe like bring up, maybe uh, talk to some customers about it. So we just ended up spending nights and weekends talking about like how amazing stream processing is and how it could also change so many other companies' trajectory. And then uh, that's when I actually also started talking to other like old from gaming industry that deals also with a lot of data, like events data of like what people are doing in the game networks. We all realize, oh, like this is not just like the problems in the ad industry. A lot of people in gaming or even like finance, a lot of other friends in finance were having also very similar to when you're dealing with a lot of events data. So maybe this is something that we can do something together with. I mean, I would say it's more like... So my CTO, Alex, kind of like recruited me into this, but I saw my also, you know, the issues firsthand at Yieldmall. And I've also talked to a lot of other like ad exchanges and network PMs about these type of issues. We felt like there was just like this issue in the industry that mm -hmm. we can go try to solve. So we should give it a try. And that's kind of how we started Concord. Yeah, so that's like a we have a lot of different conversation and visceral pain point, right? Yeah, and I gotta say, we're working on this on the side. We have also talked to other folks that have worked on like Apache Samza, obviously like creators of Storm and others, and are very receptive. And they thought, you know, we had the right footholding on the architecture and how we thought about stream processing which were all very encouraging <laughs> so yeah yeah so that emphasize important like having this conversation with practitioners to understand that basically a market research to validate the, the idea right and so, and so like based on my research concord is a real-time event-based data processing framework written in low-level c++ code that uses a unique dynamic topology model so which am i kind of explaining you know some of the pain power with existing screen processing framework at the time and then what was the competitive advantage of using Concord competitive? I was the main difference that we brought on with Concord is the, or the advantage of Concord using Concord compared to any other stream processing framework at the time, and even probably still if it still existed, uh, is in its flexibility and also performance. And when I say flexibility, because so event processor, we had a like a pops up like operator model where you can basically compose a data of like each like operating kind of like different part of the model, and each of them runs its own container like Mesos container that is stateful. So we have like our own key value data store inside that uh, you can manage the state for, and you can basically compose these jobs by metadata. So with that, because it like it its own has the like container itself, you can basically do runtime deployments of the models. So traditionally like a storm, like if you're changing a spot or sync, like any of those models, 
you have to basically like restart the whole server. Same with, you know, Spark. Like you, you basically have to turn down the whole job and then like redeploy again. For Concord, while it's running, you can change different parts of the DAG. Uh, as it runs. And that's okay because each of them running independently. So we were doing a lot of scheduling and management and of running those jobs. It's hard to actually explain everything because it's like five years ago. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I would say Lemon was one of the core flexibility advantage that Concord had, meaning you're running everything in production and you don't have to have any downtime around deploying your new models or changing small things around your models. And with that, the other big part we had was, so by the time, and even now, most of these distributed stream processing frameworks are a JVM frameworks. So mostly Java, Scala, and now there's also a lot of support for Python. So that's great. So at the time we were supporting APIs in Python, Ruby, Go, uh, C++, Java, Scala, like, you know, so a lot more support for uh, everyone to utilize <laughs> stream processor. And then the other big competitive edge of Concord was performance. So I, I've done a lot of like bake-offs against Spark streaming as well as like Flinks, Storm. And we always perform 10 to 20 times better regarding throughput. And also our basic latency is always in the tens, yeah, most of the time, tens of milliseconds. So it was really like a format processor, I would say. So I think a lot of our initial pilot customers and a lot of people were interested in Concord initially because it has an amazing performance gain, Mm -hmm. but they actually ended up like utilizing Concord or was more interested in Concord. And this was actually the part that I'm most interested in is it really is in the flexibility part of it that you can do runtime deployment that, that you can also like swap things out while the jobs are still running which I guess now I think about it is very relevant for Akamai because Akamai is all about availability. <laughs> and then we make sure that you can have an available service uh, at any time. I see. So yeah, flexibility and, and performance. Right? And I'm, I'm just curious, initially, we're just you and your co-founder. Is there anyone else that have contributed to the framework throughout those days of operation? Oh, we have, I guess, like including myself, five core members of the team. I started the company with two co-founders, Alex and Cole. So I would say three of us were the main team members here. And then our first engineer, Rob. So like, yeah, four main people. And then we had, I would say, few like people that were like helping us part-time and a lot of friends that have also like tested out the framework and contributed. So yeah, they, I mean, it's, it's not just, you know, one or two people, I would say. I mean, still, it's a very small team, mm-hmm. I would say. But I mean, both of my co-founders were really one of the best distributed systems engineers, mm-hmm. you know, that I've ever worked with. And a lot of other people think are <laughs> the best for. So yeah, I think that's also definitely one of the reasons why we were able to like build such product, like in such a short amount of time as well. Like when you're very focused and when you have like high capacity people in the team. I see. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's fascinating that, you know, just a limited amount of capital and resources that you can, you know, get something quickly and and, then with with strong results. It definitely still took longer than what we anticipated in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think any infrastructure or platform, companies and and especially infrastructure because 
other developers that are building their application on top of your platform, there is an extra amount of reliability and support that you need to ensure that you can, uh, like, uh, yeah, stability that you need to ensure it happens. That's definitely one of the, I guess, the reasons why we definitely took longer than we anticipated. But when you look back, when, when I look back and when a lot of people, they felt like, wow, you guys built a lot in that short amount of time. Another kind of follow-up question from that is like, do you uh, still uh, keep up to date with the current state of stream processing frameworks? So I'm not as up to date in stream processing anymore, but a few projects, if I were to call out is Materialize is doing a really great job on stream processing overall. Like, you know, I think their approach is very interesting. And also like he did it in C++, they are doing in Rust. And I think that's also really awesome, more close to the metal. And there is a project, I believe it's called Metaflow from Netflix. When I first saw Metaflow, I felt like this is a very similar to Concord. And then it's primarily designed for uh, machine learning and data science models. And yeah, overall, very cool. <laughs> so like a lot of the concepts that we've implemented at Concord is definitely still a concept that is now being implemented in many other parts of the data platform, data stacks. And I think it's, it's, it's great to see that. Yeah, it's very good to hear. So Concord got acquired by Akamai in 2016. As a result of that acquisition, you spent two years at Akamai, initially as a data engineer at the platform engineering unit, and then later as a product manager for the IoT Edge Connect platform. So yeah, what were some of the product engineering challenges that you recall while building that IoT platform from the ground up? There were a lot of great things about I because, you know, the amount of network and resources and the exposure that you have with customers, it's, it's really awesome. The challenges are really just like working through the myriad of working in a big company. So I was running my own company and we ha- were less than 10 people and we we're joining a I'm 6,000 person company. That's a public company and, you know, is operating in, I don't know, in different countries, like many different offices. And I had a team of 20 people, including like engineers, architects, so on and so forth, just for IoT that were distributed between three locations, Cambridge, Santa Clara, and Krakow, Poland. So, and I was in New York. So working with them remotely and uh, trying to like actually uh, get this out for beta, Mm -hmm. but also working across the teams with uh, partnering with salespeople as well as uh, partnering with other platform. Because at Akamai, if you launch any new product, you do have to go through these, what they call pace process where you do have to get a basically thumbs up from every VPs or directors there that they will support you to have your product on the network. The CDN network is pretty big, right? So I think overall it's, I've learned a lot and it's been a really interesting challenge. It's just a way of how a big company runs like they're for a reason. But, you know, having to get all the approvals or buy-ins to work along with others, I think it's something that I uh, definitely learned from being in Akamai. The other thing that I also say, like, I don't know if I should call this like a product engineering challenges, but I guess it, it, it definitely is. So IoT Edge Connect is a twofold. It's a hosted 
distributed MQTT broker and stream processor on top. And making that happen, I think whether it's distributed on the edge network or not, is already a pretty challenging project. So I think we were really scratching the edges. <laughs> now I feel like it's been coming up pun, but like really the latest technologies and the verb MQTT we were looking into and how we were trying to support our customer needs. Yeah. <laughs> Personally, the other part that I started learning a lot about is around CapEx planning. Usually when you're working mostly on just the software side, you're planning on the OPEX part of it, which is like how many people, how many man hours, like things like mm-hmm. that. Whereas with Akamai, I had to plan out like which servers are we going to deploy on which regions because a lot of the CDN servers are not designed for heavy compute. And we were pushing for sensor data processing, which requires a heavy compute. So folks that I was working with, like would, you know, design the, what type of like servers and like what that server spec would look like. And then, you know, that CapEx planning side and like looking at the next three-year margin and what the business, how the business plan would fit together. Like building that business model was like kind of like a whole new experience that I learned from Akamai, which was really interesting. Yeah, sharing that, ranging from dealing with like organizational politics to getting complex infrastructure, distributed work to come up with a business model, this new technology. It seems like, you know, they definitely, you know, gather a lot of valuable career knowledge from that two year at Akamai. Since March of 2020, you have been the founder and CEO of SelectStar, which is an intelligent data discovery platform that helps data engineers and analysts to understand the data better. And uh, I was reading this blog post that you've written as a launch of the product called the Next Evolution of Data Catalogs, Data Discovery Platforms. In that blog post, you mentioned that sharing context knowledge around data remains a largely unsolved problem. So yeah, would you mind unpacking the statement in final details? Sure. So the problem that we are solving at Selectstar is a problem that I've dealt with as a data consumer and data producer in the past. This is a, what I call data discovery problem, where I define this data discovery as finding and understanding the data. Finding meaning like, even if you don't know what it's called, you should be able to like find where that data set is or where that dashboard is and understanding like what that really represents, where did it come from, is generated, like it really represent. So when I mentioned about sharing context knowledge about data, it kind of is actually uh, being the current state of the environment that a lot of data practitioners work in today. One, overall, data documentation isn't really done well in a lot of companies. I see, I would say most of our customers, there is no table comments or column comments. They may have some documentation on Notion, Confluence, or Google Docs, but it's not up to date, it's not uh, something that a lot of people hence refer to or update on. I would say the context of like, you know, what is this data about? Where did the data come from? Like, how is this like actually used? This becomes a tribal knowledge in a lot of organization. Because there is no good documentation, there's tribal knowledge, you do have to add other people that have worked with that data in the past or find that data analyst or find that data engineer that's been in the company the longest to understand what the data is about or to ask, do we actually have this data in the company? Mm -hmm. 
There are two other issues that's starting to come up more in the last few, I guess, years as more companies are starting to move to the modern data stack, mm-hmm. as more people are starting to utilize data warehouses and data lake, the cloud data warehouse, the cloud data lakes as their main source of truth, one federated database where you have everything in one place. A few things. One is not one team person knows the answer to the data context anymore mm-hmm. because it's not just the data platform team. Data platform team may be managing, manages the infrastructure of the data warehouse, but the actual tables and columns and the transformation that happens inside the data is now being created by partly from the marketing team or the finance team or product. And hence, when you say, hey, what is this table about? You cannot just go to the data team and ask. You may have to ask multiple people about it. Mm-hmm. And similarly, if you say, how do we calculate this KPI? You may get also different answers from multiple teams. So I would say that's like another part. Last one, at least, I think the part that contributes to the issue overall is with this more of a decentralized ownership of the data, it actually comes from having more domains and business stakeholders having also access directly to the data. So, you know, it's not just getting the business stakeholders, you know, five, 10 years ago, you used, uh, they used to get emails of like how their business are doing as a report. Now they have direct access to the data through Looker, Tableau uh, mode. They can check out the dashboard themselves. They can drag and drop the fields to filter it. And now they also start like, so which filter should I use? How can I slice the data? Can I slice the data by this dimension? And one should I actually use? So I would say that all kind of contributes into the context knowledge and the sharing of that context knowledge, which is, has been, I, I feel like a hard problem it is now becoming a harder file. Thanks for providing those key reasons that, that motivate this is platform statement. Now, so in the same article, you also talk about the three capabilities of an ideal data discovery platform. Number one is to expose up-to-date operational metadata along with documentation. Number two is to track the provenance of data back to the source. And then number three is to guide data usage. Yeah, so can you uh, double click on, on these points and you know how are they back it into select uh, platform? Or operational metadata is all the things that you can find from your information schema, I would say, uh, of the data warehouse, including when is the last time the table was refreshed? So how big is the table? Well, how many rows are and what's like the query execution time? Like these are what I would call like the metadata of the tables or queries that we bring out from Selexa, but what I think a lot of data discovery platforms should bring out upfront. So you can kind of see like operationally, like what's the state is this data set in? I said the operational metadata along with the documentation. So I think documentation is really around just the annotation of like allowing the users, like data analysts, to be able to add the annotation on top of it so that, that it's not just the status of the data set, but so that they can explain like what this data set is about. Second part around tracking the provenance data back to its source, I'm really referring to data linear here. 
the ideal data discovery platform, I think, should not just be the schema and search engine on top uh, and some documentation capabilities. It should also give you other context of data, like what's the relationship different tables or columns or dashboards or the use. So here, the provenance of data is really around data lineage. Where did the data come from? What are the dashboards that were created out of this data and being actually used in other places? So that's like what I'm referring to. And the last but not least, guiding data usage is really around popularity or uh, usage of data. So that's to inform others about like what are the best practices of utilizing the data without necessarily always manually document the data. And an ideal data discovery platform should guide the user based on like what all the analysts have already done, because uh, you should probably not use that column or table because nobody has queried that table in the last 90 days, for instance. So yeah, those are the areas that I think are important that data discovery plot should cover more in the industry. I was curious how you come up with these three pillars. Was that based on a lot of multiple conversation with practitioners and potential users? How do you like silo into, you know, these top three issues? And then decided uh, those are the requirements for a good platform. So, yeah. yeah, it's a combination of like all the researches and interviews and, you know, my past experiences. So, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely a lot of things that I, I had <laughs> in the past, plus like from user interviews that I've done, like hundreds. <laughs> and, and then when, when user interviews, it's not just about, hey, what do you want? It's really like, hey, here's what we are thinking about building. Like, what do you think? And a lot of analysts are definitely eager to share about, oh, well, I want to see this. Or what can you display like this as well? Or things like that. So kind of like distilling at that down into a bucket. So I think I kind of came up with these three things. I see. And the ideal user of a data discovery platform, are they mostly analysts? Or also included data engineers and other Yeah, I would say the primary users are data engineers and data analysts because they are the one that like lives and breathes with every single day. And I think depending on the platform, there can be also like other users that you can also support. For us at SelectStar, we're also trying to support what I call data consumers, all data consumers. So they can consume data through Looker. They can just consume data through maybe email reports but they do have an interest in learning and understanding the data itself. So when they come to start, they should be able to find dashboards and charts and so on and so forth, where not just, but what we do also support tables and columns and schemas too. Now we should include the blog post in the show notes. So this is a chance to take a look and dive deeper into some of the points that you already provided. So you recently, uh, maybe like a few months ago, you written another blog post, talk about the benefits of plugging these strategic tools into a data discovery platform and collecting metadata, which can help to facilitate better visibility and understanding. More specifically, their teams can understand upstream dependencies as well as downstream impact, declutter our models and dashboards, and then empower self-serve analytics. Can you elaborate on some of these uh, observations provided in that blog post for the business? So the benefits of integrating in the BI tools into data discovery platform. It's really to see the impact of 
how the goes into data I mean, business domains. So first and foremost, understanding upstream dependencies and downstream impacts is really for, so all these benefits is actually designed for data platform teams, just so you're aware. So first and foremost, these upstream and downstream impacts is twofold. One, for any engineer, if they are about to change or update a table or a column, they will be able to, having a BI tool integration, you get to see basically which dashboards are going to get impacted and Mm -hmm. also who may be impacted because of that, because they are the top users of that dashboard. Usually when data team has to do like an ad hoc IT support, it's primarily because the business person on on the business side is saying, hey, the data looks wrong. The report is loading correctly. There's something looks off and be usually uh, happening, usually because like the SQL query engine, you know, should be the same report, but something with the data. And there can be many different issues around like why the data is off, but many times it can be because an engineer that have changed a upstream table didn't realize that the data was being used by other dashboards. For engineers to basically real, you see downstream effect would look like, you know, it gives a very quick and effect impact analysis for them. Vice versa for any data analysts, when they get called saying, hey, like my dashboard looks off. When they are debugging and looking into the dashboard, especially if the dashboard that they didn't write somebody else's, they can easily find out like what tables is this dashboard querying? And they can figure out when was this table got updated last time. You can also look at, oh, like this new dashboard, like is this column actually calculated correctly? So it's very easy to get out once when you have that data lineage between the BI tool and your data discovery platform or the, in your data lineage. So that's one part of it. Second part is what I call utilizing popularity in your data. So what we display at SelectStar is a more of like all your database tables ordered by popularity. So you can see basically what are the dashboards and tables that nobody's using anymore. So especially dashboards, like for BI tools, there are so many dashboards to create because a lot of the dashboards become like an ad hoc answers to ad hoc business questions. But nobody wants to delete the dashboard because who knows, maybe somebody's using it. But you don't know that until you actually look into like a data discovery platform. So that's making it, doing like a spring cleaning uh, is uh, really helpful because we'll tell you that, hey, this is actually being used or nobody has been, you know, looking at this before or these dashboards actually issues as errors and it was created like a year ago. So uh, you should just create them. Uh, so safely deprecating a lot of old dashboards is definitely another big benefit because, it, you know, you can sure leave it alone and, but who knows, like might be using a wrong dashboard that nobody's updating anymore. And that could become a disaster for sure if they are making business decisions based on that. Last one, at least on the self-service analytics part, because more business stakeholders are used to looking at reports and workbooks and dashboards, not tables and columns, 
having a tool that they can also see and where they can, what they can use to utilize to find which filter should I slice this data set on? What are the right dashboard to look at? Because there are 10 different ones. I think it is all very something that's empowering and encouraging for the business stakeholders to get closer to data. I think there's a lot of domain owners that has a lot of thoughts in mind as more of like, well, I wonder if I could create this type of metric. I want to measure something like X, Y, Z. But do we track that data? Do we even have that data? It's very hard for them to tell unless they've like seen the actual data set or even like what are the things that has been created that's related to what I'm looking for. I think getting these examples and getting the more of a platform to discover this is a always empowering for a lot of business stakeholders. So uh, that's, a, I would say, a big benefit for having the BI tool integration. I mean, it's all so that they can self-serve themselves and mm-hmm. uh, hence reduce time that the data team has to work as almost like an ad hoc support. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of transition pretty well to my next question. Because we're talking about like integration, right? And then in uh, interoperability in general. Taking a step back and looking at the broader data tooling ecosystem, where do you see uh, data discovery platforms fit into the modern data analytics stack? Overall, I think the core of data discovery is really from the integrations and the metadata that uh, you collect and should I say like make that metadata searchable and useful (laughs) is really like what the data discovery platform should do. So having that integration with all parts of data stack, eventually, I think is the goal uh, or should be the goal, because that should eventually be the place where anyone can come to, to like, because it should be the one, like a single source of truth you come to, to find what you're looking for. And then you can jump off to a BI tool or Airflow or a data warehouse or the report itself. Once you find, you know, answer, whether you are a data engineer, data analyst, or a business stakeholder, that's how I envision the role that data discovery platform should play along with the other modern data analytics tools in the stack. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks for providing your insight perspective uh, regarding the question. So let's take off your data hat and put on your father hat. And talking about like job um, on the operational side of you know, running a startup, finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any uh, enterprise product. What was some of the challenge that you have to overcome in order to find these early adopters of Select Stars? The challenge, and it's I would say still the current challenge, is <laughs> the marketing. Yeah, I mean, when you're a startup, like regardless of the industry, and even if you're like B2B or B2C. How do you find the customer that will be interested in your platform when most people don't know about you? Mm-hmm. So I think that's the biggest challenge. So far, I mean, early days, you know, for us, I've been relying very heavily on my network and kind of like scouting out who might be the right type of companies and who might be the right type of people that might be interested in what we are building as Alexar. So, you know, I would say so far it's been mostly intros. And, but the other big part is post that I wrote. Fortunately, a lot of people have enjoyed the article and have requested for demo or like, you know, inquired us more about product. So mm-hmm. I think that's been great. But it's still a challenge because I personally haven't spent as much 
time and energy on marketing, which is something that I now plan to do more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I think it's all marketing. And I would say distribution is always the biggest, bigger challenge for early stage startup. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, for sure. Because you have a finite amount of time and you have to run other stuff, right? And so figure out the right allocation of resources to activities like marketing are always going to be challenging given multiple headers everywhere. You know, it's important to find people who can do that well for you. Hiring is another critical responsibility of any early startup founder. What valuable lesson that you have learned to attract the right people who are excited about Select Star's mission? I feel like for hiring, so we have a team of 10 now and it's been more than a year and it's been really amazing to work with this team, but it's been really hard to find these people, right? And what I want to say is eventually, I mean, it is far up to it's their initial team. I think a lot of it really is just, eventually I think it becomes like numbers game. You do have to meet a lot of people. You do have to talk to a lot of people to find the right people because it's not just about the match of skill sets and the level. It's also a lot about what they are interested in, whether they are interested in like the specific area that you are working in. Are they also the right fit of working in an early stage startup? Like, you know, a lot of different things come in play. If anything, if I were to share any of my lessons with early stage is that, uh, yes, hiring is hard. So it means like you do have to spend a lot of time uh, and energy on it, but it's also worth keeping the bar high. Because once someone joins your team, you are also going to spend a lot of time and effort to ensure that they're like trained and ramped up on board and there is a lot of impact that each individual makes inside the team so if it doesn't really work out it's it's hard but and you do have to make that hard decision quickly but overall i think just trying to do as much as you can to do your work and keeping the bar high that like is the right fit of the team i think is a, is i think yeah lessons that i've learned yeah, initially, I would say early on, there were a couple of people that wasn't necessarily the right fit, but it, it's also in like, you know, you are going to make mistakes as a founder. Yeah. Uh, yeah, especially hiring. So I think, you know, fine. It's just like always like rinse and repeat, you know, you'll be able to figure it out. I see. Yeah. Just from some of those, you know, rinse and repeat cycle, like what are some of the qualities that you actually try to look for in someone who might be a good fit for startups? Like what are some of those intangibles that you think make a good startup fit? Yeah. I would say uh, people that are more growth driven, like they are interested in new problems and challenges. And because of that, they, because they have this interest and passion, like they are uh, fairly like say more active, more proactive than passive. I think that's a very important quality of uh, when you are being part of the startup, a startup. The other areas I look for, and this is just very personal, I value high integrity, just doing the right thing and, you know, being collaborative and open. I think if you're in a larger company, if the team out, you can switch to a different team. In a small company, you probably have to find a job, right? But I think just being able to is also a very important part about, you know, when you're in a startup. I feel like a lot of the startup life is usually 
like it's hard, but it's fun. And it's, it's a lot of work, but you know, also like you're growing quickly and you know, fun. I, I, I really experienced that yield well as well. So I think people that can value that type of is also the uh, right fit more than just like the compensation or title uh, or the exact like role that you do every day. But yeah, in, I think in startups, you end up wearing a lot of hats and even as an, like an individual contributors, a lot of people do end up wearing multiple hats. So there yeah. are people that enjoy that type of challenge and there are people that, you know, necessarily uh, doesn't like that challenge either. So yeah, I see. yeah like those are really growth mindset and adaptability to multiple functional roles, right? So we talk about like finding customers, we talk about finding employees, last group of the demographics I want to talk about is finding investors. Selectstar raised a super round led by Barry Capital back in February with participation from Micro Capital and a number of other prominent angels. What fundraising advice could you give for data founders who are seeking the right investors for their startups? So like fundraising itself, I think, you know, can be its own podcast episode. <laughs> you know? But there's also a lot of good resources around fundraising. So I wouldn't go into like any like super generic stuff. I think for specifically for data founders and any like enterprise tech company founders, the part that I think is important for fundraising is finding the investors that actually knows the data space. Mm. This is actually like applicable for any other startup. But I think in the beginning, a lot of Founders think, oh, well, that, you know, investor invested in like something that's adjacent to what we do. They would probably be interested in like what we're doing. So for example, like if I were to give an example, like, oh, like this so-and-so invested in Looker or something like Google Analytics. So they must be interested in like SelectStar as well. Usually it's not because like product analytics is a uh, actually a different, like its own category than modern data stack and data catalogs. So what it means is for founders, it's important for them to do their homework to understand like which funds and partners are uh, excited about the data space. How much do they know about it? And and beca- because of like, I think it's a really great time, uh, not just to raise, but like a lot of investors do publish their own blogs, their Twitter, talking about what they are interested in. It, you know, you can do your research to understand that, and that will save you a lot of time about finding the writers. That's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are a ton of other advice too, but you know, <laughs> that's I guess one part that I feel like can be a good time saver for a lot of founders. Yeah. For you personally, what about like Bowery Capital and you know BlackRock Capital? This firm that attract you to strap this relationship? So Bowery is our lead investor for Seed. Mm -hmm. And I met the main partner there, Mike Brown at Bowery Capital, long time ago, like right after actually I raised our like Seed round for Concord. Uh, Bowery didn't participate in my last company, but Mike and I just stayed in touch and he reached out to me after I moved to San Francisco and we caught up and it just overall, you know, I think having that existing relationship definitely helped because, you know, he knew me and I also just like overall knew him, but I've also done like, you know, 
like my own diligence of mic, which, you know, all came back amazingly. So I think that's like one of the reasons why I went with Bowery. I'm, I mean, when I was racing, <laughs> I started raising RC's round in March 2020. It was really the worst time to raise. <laughs> Most of the investors, I would say, have actually passed on our seed round because they were busy checking in back in their own portfolio companies. And I'm just really glad that, you know, at the time, Valerie, like really, you know, believed in like what, what I was going to do. And I mean, given our like past relationship and also like my past track record, but uh, they've been a really amazing so far. I think the other big part of uh, Bari, so they didn't necessarily invest a lot in the data infrastructure space in the past, but their focus is B2B SaaS. All of their portfolio companies are in B2B SaaS. And for us, the Select Star is a SaaS company. It's a B2B SaaS company. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I see it. So hence a lot of the uh, expertise that they have around sales, market distribution, go-to-market, I thought would be also really helpful uh, for us to uh, leverage. So that's also why we, I went with Bowery. Yeah, thanks for sharing those thoughtful insights and an anecdote of how you um, kickstart this partnership and fundraising with Bowery. At this point of conversation, I want to move on into the final closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions, and you can give the answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data analytics and business intelligence community whose work you admire. Okay. So I don't have anyone like specific that I always follow, but there are a few people that I think are definitely worth noting about their work. First and foremost is Martin Club. So he's not necessarily super into like data analytics and BI, but he is an amazing researcher. Uh, he also created Apache Samza, who's, uh, which is uh, the other stream processing framework that we also got a lot of inspiration for on our design of Concord. Uh, Martin called Data Intensive Applications, which I think is a book that I would highly recommend for anyone that's interested in data engineering and the data model or processing execution, how that happens underneath. He's also a really writer. He's given a lot of great talks and he has an amazing blog too. So Martin Klum, I would definitely check it out. The other two people are people that I recently came across and I love their blogs. So one I really love is by this woman named Emily Reeder. She's a, I believe, a senior PM at Capital One, and she runs basically like a data platform product at Capital One and really insightful blog posts about the, you know, like I think one of the things that she recently wrote about was like called modeling. The other, I initially discovered her blog post around column naming, which I thought was amazing. And that, because it's also very related to data. The other blogger that I really like is, her name is Anya Prosvetova. I can give you the show notes after, uh, or like their names. So I've discovered her blog when we were doing integrations of Tableau. And she's, I think, one of the Tableau like developer evangelists. But her blog has this like whole, like, like a lot of posts around how to utilize Tableau well. I mean, Tableau is such a like, it's, it's a, but there's a lot that's packed in. 
So like unpacking some of these in her blog post, I thought was really insightful. And there is a blog post that she wrote about the Tableau metadata API. And she actually built a data catalog as an example on top of that metadata API. Yeah, that was really awesome. So yeah, that's definitely another uh, person that I think is worth checking out. Both Emily and, and Anya, I think, goes into the details of how, like, I love these posts when it talks about very specific details and why and with, so it's, it's just a type of uh, work that I, I do admire. Yeah. Fabulous. Number two, name one book that you recommend for data analysts to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset. So I thought this was a really hard question, but my pick is Managing Oneself. This is by Peter Drucker. It's a short book. I think running a company or building a company, entrepreneur mindset, eventually, like it's not necessarily an entrepreneur mindset, but like once you start being coming or working as a founder, a lot of it, it really comes down to understanding yourself. Mm. Like what are you really good at? What are you not as good at? And hence, how are you going to like accommodate that? How are you going to leverage your strengths and how are you going to like work around your weaknesses, either by partnering with others or you know, being a firm, like so on and so forth. And I think it kind of like, like packs into like almost like a summary into that book. So it's something that I would recommend. Yeah. Peter Drucker is managing oneself. And then lastly, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the early stage data practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I would always go back to the data context. I would tweet something like, when talking to others about data, you should share your data context. Where did the data come from? How was it generated? What angle are we looking at? That's what I would say. I think this is all applicable. You don't have to use a tool. Like I think every time you're communicating about a data, whether you're a data analyst or even from the business stakeholder side, if you want something to be done, I think sharing that context uh, with others is always helpful. Yeah, I think so. that's a good rule of thumb for people to follow and easy to, to remember as well. So yeah, Sinji, I really enjoy our conversation today, learning about your background from studying software engineering in Waterloo, some of your experience doing internship in various companies, your staying as a management consultant at Deloitte, your work at Yomo running the product and engineering team, your work on stream processing framework control system, your time at Atomai Technologies, and your current journey with SelectStar from building a complete idea discovery platform to different operational aspects of running a startup, such as, you know, fighting customers, fighting employees, and, and fighting uh, investors. So I'll be sure to include everything in the show notes, and this is an chance to take a look and kind of dig deeper into some of the interesting challenges and solutions that you're working on at SelectStar. But yeah, Sinji, I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me here. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.